Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. If you're not a brain scientist, you may not really have noticed this, but when people describe the brain, they more often than not compare it to a computer. In fact, the metaphor of the brain as a computer has defined the field for some time, and in many ways it works. There are respects in which the brain is like a computer, but there are other aspects of the brain which are not captured by the computer metaphor, which is why the neuroscientist Daniel Graham is suggesting another way of understanding the brain. He argues it's a communication system like the internet, and he lays out his ideas in An Internet in Your Head, A New Paradigm for How the Brain Works is published by Columbia University Press. So, uh, Daniel Graham, welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Owen. And let's just deal, first of all, with the computer metaphor. Uh, Well, how well does it work? I think it works quite well. Um, We uh, have started from a place of really not knowing at all how, uh, for example, the visual system works, um, say, about 150 years ago. Um, to having a a really good idea of um, what individual neurons in uh, your visual system are doing, um, what specific aspects of the visual world they actually care about. And it turns out that um, there are uh, basic shapes or basic uh, kind of identities that um, an individual neuron can, can capture. And these neurons will fire or be active um, only when that special thing is happening or, or something similar to it. Um, and, uh, and this is, you know, spectacularly effective and, um, detailed picture of, um, what, uh, single neurons are doing. And, you know, that we have 86 billion of these things in our heads and, um, just looking at it from the outside, it looks like kind of an undifferentiated mass of pudding. Um, but, uh, through you know tireless effort, and I think building on this foundation of a metaphor of uh, of a computer, and really of a kind of representational device, right? So a computer is not just a thing for kind of adding numbers together; um, it's also about storing information. Um, so you put information into the memory, and you can get it back out. And it's this kind of representational capacity and the ability to kind of combine information in this kind of algorithmic or mathematical way um, that has made computers so powerful and also has helped us to understand um, 
uh, you know, what the brain is doing. And I think um, these, this metaphor um, is the foundation that everything else is built on top of. And if you look at models today of how the visual system works or specific parts of the visual system, you know, they're going to look extremely complicated and there's going to be a lot of math and anatomy and physiology. But at their root, um, the kind of theoretical foundation that they all rest upon is this idea that um, you anything that you're experiencing, the color red or an object moving up and to the right or thirst or hunger, um, is somehow represented in your brain through some complicated pattern of activity. Um, and, you know, we haven't been able to, uh, you know, cure a lot of diseases with this picture, but um, I think given the uh, complexity of the thing, um, that's, that's not too surprising. Um, and uh, so we, we can we can do a great deal with with the computer metaphor and this idea of representation, but I think there's more. Just to break in there, you're saying that it's not just that neuroscientists have said the brain is like a computer. They've also looked at how computers worked and sort of worked backwards and said, yeah, that's probably how the brain's doing this particular thing as well. Yes, something like it, or at least uh, the main principles and the kind of goals of the system are very parallel or, or, or very much alike. Um, and, uh, you know, th I think the, the power in using a technological metaphor is that technology and, and engineered systems in general have goals. And that's also true of biological systems. They're not, um, you know, designed from the outside, but certainly they've been shaped by evolution in a way that carries out particular activities very, very well and, and does them all together in kind of one compact package. Um, and so being able to represent sounds and smells and sights and planned movements and things that happened to you 20 years ago, um, all, they all need to, they're all going to use uh, something like this, this idea of representation. They all need to be stored somewhere and be able to be uh, utilized or, or referenced. Um, and, uh, and really, to me, this is kind of uh, where the internet metaphor comes in is um, one question that a lot of people uh, that people have not really asked is uh, how do you coordinate all of this representation? How do you move information from one place to another um, so that you can compare representations of visual information with auditory information with stored memories from long ago? Um, and how do you do that quickly and efficiently and robustly? We will get onto this internet metaphor surely in just a moment. But first of all, just on your use of the word representation, you're basically saying that the brain takes a representative pattern or image or something like that and stores that. That's why you're using the word representation. Yes, absolutely. And, and it can be an abstract representation, right? I, you could also think of it as a code, as some kind of encoding um, with some internal language, right? So there's lots of different ways that you can express an idea. You can do it with uh, with English, with spoken English, right? Um, or you can transliterate that into uh, written characters, or you can express very much similar or very similar types of ideas in Chinese or with Chinese characters, right? So um, the information uh, is out there, right? And we're trying to code it or capture it in some way using some set of symbols. Um, but, uh, and, and this, and this is why I think it's so powerful that we can identify individual neurons that seem to be like the letters of vision. 
that uh, capture particular patterns in the world and that only pop up or, or only become active when that particular thing is, is happening. Yeah. And, and just to uh, look again at this whole idea of metaphors for the brain, if you go further back, uh, rather than going ahead to your one of the internet, if we go back, pre-computer metaphor, w- were there other ones that people used? Yes, absolutely. This really starts with uh, René Descartes. Um, and for him, um, the brain metaphor actually came second. The, the first metaphor that he needed was to see the whole organism as a kind of machine. So, you know, this is the 16, the middle of the 17th century. Um, and uh, he kind of looked around and he saw this kind of uh, flowering of of the of the early enlightenment um, and engineering feats, especially things like um, the water gardens at Versailles, which he was familiar with, uh, which could shoot water high up into the air and um, you know have statues play musical instruments and these other kinds of things. Um, it required a whole um, uh, panoply of engineering solutions to bring the water up from from the Seine River and uh, distribute it and to to make all these these things work. Um, and, and this was a relatively new idea, the idea of kind of machines that could run on their own. Obviously they'd need to be designed this way. Um, but if you put the right kind of principles into it, then it can kind of run, uh, on its own power. And so he looked at living things, so at least not, uh, humans, but, uh, he had kind of other views about humans, but he looked at, at, um, other animals, lots of different animals he had, he was familiar with from um, from dissections and from um, uh, from cadavers and so on. Um, he knew basically what they were constructed out of it, and he noticed that the brain seemed to be an important thing. He, uh, you know, he he was this was not too this was early in human understanding that the brain was the seat of the intellect um, for pretty much all the time. Uh, before then, or for, for much of the time before then, uh, most people thought it was the heart or they uh, didn't really have a, a good theory about it at all. Um, so uh, in looking at the brain, he saw it as some kind of machine and, and the machine that he was familiar with or, or that he thought was most advanced and maybe most relevant was a kind of plumbing system. And so he, his his idea was that the, uh, the pineal gland, which is kind of a little protuberance in the center of your brain. Um, it's an unpaired structure. So it's just one little thing rather than two mirror images on, on both sides. Um, and it kind of sits surrounded by some tubes, um, which uh, he knew were filled with fluids. And so it kind of made sense to him that there is this master valve in the pineal gland that uh, is able to distribute um, these fluids through this plumbing system to make your arms move and to make your, your mouth talk and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and he, he, was, you know, he was wrong about the, the particulars of, of this, but it is actually true. You know, you could say, well, you know, brain is not a plumbing system. Well, it really is a plumbing system. Not only are these tubes, these, were, these are actually the ventricles uh, that the pineal gland, gland is surrounded by. Um, they move fluids around. Not, they, they're not involved in thinking, but um, there are parts of, of neurons, for example, uh, little things called ion pumps that are able to move charged particles in and out. And they... But, you know, this is the kind of idea of uh, of a plumbing system involved in thought uh, is kind of reborn there. 
Yeah, so it's it's almost as if people are just grasping at the the latest, highest technology they can find. You know, if it was Versailles and it's amazing plumbing, uh, they're just looking at that and saying, oh, the brain's like that. Oh, no, it's like a computer. That's the sort of cleverest thing we've got now. And now we're saying, oh, the Internet's a sort of new frontier of technology. So it's like that. Do you, do you think there's a tendency just to take the latest technology and, and use that as a metaphor? I think so. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I think uh, anytime there's a new technology, um, it's new for a reason. It's, it's powerful for a reason. Um, it's harnessing some basic aspect of, uh, of nature uh, for our use and, and in a very specific sort of way. Um, and it's often aligned with the kinds of things that, that our brains allow us to do. Um, and, you know, we kind of are seeing this now, uh, especially with, uh, with AI, which is um, the kind of tools that we're using for, uh, for deep learning, for, uh, for, uh, for advanced AI. A lot of them were inspired by the brain, which was itself, uh, our, our, our theories about the brain were themselves inspired by uh, earlier ideas about what computers were capable of and this idea of representation. Um, and so uh, there's a kind of interesting circularity to it. Um, but I think that's precisely because brains and their uh, analogical counterparts um, have very similar goals and, and work by very similar principles. Yeah, but do uh, other body parts get... You know, metaphored, yeah. if I can say that in this way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really hear many people saying the kidneys like this or the livers a bit like this. Do I? Or maybe I do. Um, yeah. So kidneys, uh, I guess, are a bit simpler. But you know, we certainly think about um, you know uh, armies of uh, of cells in your immune system that hunt down and kill uh, viruses. You know, they're it's not actually they're not wearing uniforms or anything like that. Um, th there are actually lots and lots of different places, especially you know in, in all different areas of biology, um, where we use metaphor but don't necessarily realize it. So, you know, in genetics, we can talk about uh, genetic clocks, which can, you know, let you know how, uh, how long ago it was that two lineages uh, diverged. Um, there's no actual clock mechanism involved there. Um, but the idea of a clock helps us to put things into context and, uh, and explain lots of things. Okay, so we've gone through the computer one now and its representation, its storage, its calculations. And then you've added this idea of the internet, which is basically explaining how it helps us understand how the brain sends messages uh, to different parts of itself and, and, and combines them. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, at a superficial level, um, if you think of the brain as a computer, well, it's not a big step to say, well, you know, computers become more powerful when you connect them up, um, just like an internet. And so, you know, from this, this very general way, uh, it makes sense to, if you're going to get exploit the full power of computers, um, it makes sense to connect them in some way. But the metaphor really goes a lot deeper than that. Okay, and talk us through that. Yeah. So, um, and I think this is what makes any metaphor useful, um, is uh, how deep it goes uh, and, and how many kind of sub metaphors it has. Um, I really got interested in this, uh, kind of idea, uh, working on it when I was in, in graduate school, I was, uh, uh, studying brains and, uh, the visual system. And just kind of as a side project, I became a researcher for a book about email. And, um, 
I have to say, I, it, it didn't seem especially interesting uh, or, or exciting at the time, because um, email, even then for me, was, was a very uh, quotidian uh, thing associated with, uh, with office work. Um, but I quickly discovered that there are deep principles in how the internet is organized. And, and you know, this, this gives rise to email, ultimately. Email is just one part of it. Um, the, the structure of the, of the internet um, has this kind of conceptual framework that, uh, that is very deep and is solving problems that I, I very quickly realized uh, are very similar to the kinds of problems that brains have to solve. Um, it's a matter of how you distribute messages across a, a very, very large network with lots and, and lots of elements in a way that is reliable, um, is robust to uh, changes and, and errors, um, and that doesn't use a whole lot of energy. And, and so I started to look at, at different parts of the internet, just strategies for, you know, how do you get a message from here to there? How do you choose um, which path to take? How do you ensure that um, each part of that message, or, or however you send the message, that it actually gets there? How do you get the confirmation of that? Um, what do you do when there's an outage, right? What do you do when, when there's some, some problem somewhere on the network? All these problems are ones that brains seem to, to need to solve. And, and, you know, getting back to the kind of representation picture or the computer metaphor, most of the theories that we have today, uh, the idea is you get to the representation and then you're done, right? If you, are, if you have been able to represent the color red or thirst or hunger through some pattern of activity, well, that's, that's it. That's all you need to do. But of course, we need to extract that information. We need to share that information. And we're learning more and more. This is, you know, I kind of became interested in, in the internet at just the right time because we have, in the last 10, 15, 20 years, developed spectacularly better understanding of how the different parts of the brain are connected to one another. Um, these uh, long axons or, or white matter tracts that connect different regions of your visual system and your auditory system and decision-making areas and, and so on. We now know with fantastic detail, especially in animals like mice and monkeys, very great, very detailed picture of how they're connected, how, how many cables essentially are connecting the different parts. And, and this, this, this suggests different ways, uh, a particular way of passing messages. Because one of your points is that the brain has multiple ways of carrying the same information, isn't it? So that it, it, it can choose a number of paths and may choose more than one at once. That's right. And this really gets back to uh, one of the there are really two core ideas in that undergird the whole Internet at a conceptual level. Um, one is this network architecture. Right. And actually, two people came up with this idea at the same time. Actually, they came up with both of these core ideas at the same time within about a year of each other. Uh, Paul Baran in, uh, in the United States and Donald Davies in the UK um, in, uh, in the 1960s. The, uh, on the network side, the, the key idea was that you need a way of getting messages from one place to another on a network of interconnected things such that um, it's robust, right? So if you knock out one node, then the whole thing will still work, right? And you also needs to be relatively fast, right? You can't be passing the message again and again and again if you want to get uh, to some other node or some other point on the network. And 
uh, Paul Baran was working on nuclear command and control networks. So this was a real problem that he was trying to solve, you know, clearly an, an important problem. And he realized that the, the kind of organization of a telephone network wouldn't work very well. So with a telephone network, you have a central switching station, right? And everybody's connected to there. And if you want to talk, if any one person wants to talk to any other person, they have to go through that switchboard. But that's not very robust. You can destroy the switchboard and then nobody can talk to anybody else. So another alternative is, we'll just be connected to your nearest neighbor. But this has the problem of you're going to have to pass the message again and again. It's going to be a long chain of, of message passing before the message gets where you want it to go most of the time. So he realized that you can kind of compromise between these two and have clusters that are connected well, but then connect clusters to each other, sometimes to very, very distant clusters. And if you do this, then the average distance that you need to travel becomes very, very short. Right? These are known as small world networks. And and at the same time, it's robust, right? If you destroy one network, or sorry, one, one node, there are still lots of other paths that you can take, lots of other good short paths that you can take to get from any place to just about any other place on the network. And so this was a, a key idea, but this is really only half of, of, uh, of what goes into the internet. The other part ha- is about how you pass the messages. Okay, can we just stop there sure. just, and just, just deal with the network? So when you say the brain is like the internet in this respect, that there are networks and the information is transmitted in that way, are you speculating about that or are you able to do uh, research and experiments which show that's true? Uh, no, we don't have direct evidence of that uh, at the moment. But you think it's likely? I think it's likely that the real, the real challenge here from a kind of procedural side is that we can't usually follow messages as they are passed around. So in other words, you can't say, you can't trace a route um, that some message is, is traveling. Even to suppose that there are messages at all is not necessarily accepted by every neuroscientist. Uh, there are certainly going to be people that, 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 that disagree with this idea. But I think from both from a kind of functional point of view of, of our ability to combine lots and lots of different streams of information um, and in, in a kind of fundamental way, and also from the architecture of, of the brain. And because we do know that there are these mechanisms that seem to be capable of s- steering information uh, in one direction or in another direction, uh, and various other kind of building blocks or elements that seem well suited to this kind of task, I think it has to happen in, in some way. It, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to look exactly like the internet. And in fact, my my big point about proposing the internet metaphor is not that the brain works exactly like the internet, but that it uses some kind of communication protocol um, that solves seemingly similar problems. Right. And, and, and then onto the second bit, because you said that there was this network aspect of the internet that was interesting. And, and, and then there was a, a second aspect. Yes. And so this is how you actually perform the communication between those two nodes. So you've set it up so that there is a short path and it's robust. There are several short paths you can go. So what do you do then? Well, again, you know, thinking about other types of communication systems, uh, a telephone network if I were to call you Owen, I would dial up your number first and then you know, establish a, a connection. And then we could communicate as much or as little as we want for as long as we want. And it's great. You know, we can have a, a conversation in real time. 
but nobody else can talk to us at the same time, right? So our, our channels are completely seized between us. And, and you know, and this, is, this is great for some things, but, but not for others. If you compare that to a postal system, right? So if I want to mail you a letter, you know, I can pack a lot of information, a very dense uh, amount of information into a letter or you know, a package or something and send it on to you. I put it in, in the mailbox and it'll my, the mail carrier will come and pick it up and bring it along with a bunch of other people's mail to the post office and, and, uh, and it'll eventually make it to you. But this is relatively slow, right? We can't have a conversation back and forth. And for example, if I want to be sure that you got it, well, you're going to have to put a letter into, into your post and then it's going to have to make its way back to me. So you know, it isn't necessarily as reliable. You, you don't have instant confirmation that it worked. So the internet kind of takes, again, a kind of compromise between these, these two ways of doing things. And instead of packaging your message into one envelope, it chops it up into lots of little tiny envelopes. And then it kind of spreads that message out on, onto the network um, and it allows those messages to propagate basically according to local rules. When you chop your message into little, little envelopes, you label each one with your address and uh, the receiver's address and what part of the message it contains. And that's about it. It, it. You're placing a lot of trust in the entire network, essentially, to be able to find a good route between where you are and where the destination is. And so this required a whole other set of solutions, uh, not, not just a kind of structural solution of how you connect things up, but solutions for things like what happens when two of these little envelopes, which are called packets, what happens when they bump into one another? What happens when they arrive at the same node in the network at the same time? Well, the internet has very clever solutions for this kind of thing. And it also makes sure that at every step along the way, there's some kind of confirmation that the message was received. And there are various other solutions. I can get into to the kind of specifics of these, but these are the, again, the kind of sub-metaphors or deeper aspects of the internet metaphor um, that I think are specifically re relevant for the brain and where I think the most promising directions of research lie. Well, let me just ask you about that bit of it, because as you say, you know, the brain could work like this. It's basically what you're saying is, you know, the, the brain is performing similar functions. The Internet seems to manage it this way. Uh, it'd be interesting to think about whether the brain's doing it in the same way. But even if you've not been able to do experiments to establish some of this, are you able to dissect brains and to examine them and in some way validate the claims? Or can you imagine research projects that would do that? Yes, I, the I think the main type of evidence that you'd want to look for is traffic along these long white matter tracts that that I mentioned before. These are the bundles of axons or bundles of kind of the tails of neurons that connect one part of the brain with another, and it's this incredible kind of interconnected mass that you have to imagine with some longer white matter tracts and some shorter ones. At the moment, it's not possible to record from these axons. What we do instead is we record from the gray matter. That's the kind of stuff on the surface um, that you're probably that you would normally associate with brains, the kind of bumpy surface of, of the brain. That's where the cell bodies live, and we can we can listen in and see how they're what sort of activity they're displaying. And you know, again, this is this is largely the result of thinking about the brain as 
uh, a kind of representational machine where the cell body is kind of where the information lies to some extent, right? That, that, that that's where, and, and, and the dendrites, which are usually nearby. In some ways, we have to use the representational or the computer metaphor because that's the part of the brain or, the, or the, that's the seemingly corresponding part of the brain that, that we're able to get information from. It's these connections or the, the long range system for passing information that's much harder to access. You know, there are increasing attempts to look at relationships between two areas that we know are connected to one another. So using brain imaging technology, you can say, well, it's, this area is, is active and it's, and we know it's connected to this other area. And when we see them active in similar sorts of ways with some short time delay, you know, we can get some sense that maybe they are connected. I think we need even much, much more fine-grained ways of measuring that. I think these kinds of inferential approaches may be good, but I think we need much more fine-grained information, which just really isn't available yet. Just, 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 to, just to understand that, it's quite crude at the moment the way you're describing it. So what advances can you see in research techniques that would sharpen that up? Yeah. So, I mean, it... it it sounds really crude, but I, I have to really emphasize that it, it's tremendously difficult even to I'm, do what, I, <laughs> what I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it isn't. <laughs> uh, but the, I think there are, I think that the the technical challenges are, are really very big, but I think there are still indirect ways that we can evaluate this idea, and um, and one of them has to do with how the network grows, right? So. From the question is, you know, if you just had a communication system and you knew nothing about it, but you could probe it in different ways, you know, what sort of things would you look for to determine what the what the rules are, you know, what the protocol is? Uh, that's that's kind of what we're after here. What's that routing protocol? And one thing you can do is just add more parts or, or more nodes to the network and see how it grows. See what adding nodes uh, does to that to that system. And so again, coming back to like a telephone network, you know, if, if I have a, a landline and my neighbor gets a new landline, you know, that's not going to affect me at all. It's not going to slow down my conversation with you unless lots and lots of other people nearby also get landlines. And then, you know, the connect the, the connection's not, to, not available anymore. You know, there's a kind of catastrophic failure, but up until that point, there's really no cost. So as you add more nodes, you could look for that kind of thing, right? Whereas uh, for the internet, when it grows, you know, if, if, if my neighbor is suddenly gets on the internet, then it's going to slow down my packets a little bit, right? They're all going to be on this on similar on the same channels and mixed together. So it's going to slow me down just a little bit. And if more and more people are added, then it's going to slow things down, you know, slowly and incrementally, but there's going to be some cost over time. And, and so the, so, you know, how do you add neurons to the brain? Well, you know, we can't physically put more in there, but we can look through development and we look, we can look through evolution to see, you know, as brains get bigger in mammals, for example, you know, how do these kinds of costs scale up? Yeah, that's interesting. So you can look at the development over what, from a childhood to an adulthood, maybe, but then, then also presumably you could look at the deterioration of the brain and, and, the response to trauma, because I, I mean, I, I, you, you'll, you'll know better than me, but I, I, yeah. I think I'm right in saying, I'll say that 
when when the brain receives trauma, it can find workarounds. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating area and actually a place where there are already a few kind of routing models or, or ideas of how routing could be implemented. So you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of a focal lesion, which just means, a, you know, an insult to one particular part of the brain. So that's obviously going to knock out some set of connections, but there are still other connections, which, you, as you say, can kind of skirt around where the where the problem area is. And we know that brains can definitely do this. Uh, you know, for example, if you are are blindfolded for a long period of time, your uh, your visual system is not getting a whole lot of input. Um, you know, this is reversible with, with blindfolds. But if you're at the same time, for example, learning how to read Braille, you will call on your your visual brain. And this isn't because you're building new connections from, for example, your touch system to your your visual system. Those connections were there all along. You're just exploiting them more and and sending more traffic over those sorts of connections. And this is this happens for people who are born blind as well. In in the case of brain deterioration, one thing that's happening there is that as you are kind of cutting these these uh, some of the connections in, in something like uh, like Alzheimer's disease or, or or other forms of dementia. You're actually you're upsetting the the ability for these different parts of the brain to work together, um, and there are other sorts of degenerative diseases, things like multiple sclerosis, which I think is a great target for these kinds of investigations because it attacks precisely these long axons, these these long white matter tracts, um, and they become less effective over time, and it has these kind of global effects where really MS can affect just about any cognitive or behavioral system in the body. And it's kind of idiosyncratic. Um, so I think those are, those are definitely good places to look. So yes, on, on the kind of building up the network through, through development and over evolutionary time, and then also how it de- deteriorates by uh, cutting uh, connections or, or making them less effective. I, I just wonder if this is an area uh, in which identical twins could be helpful as well. Because I, I, I read it in your book and I was really surprised that if, if you take a cross-section of the brains of identical twins, they can be quite different, which seems so surprising. Uh, why, why is that? And can that help you? Yeah, I mean, they're going to be very similar to one another, but the precise pattern of connections is definitely going to be different. So in other words, it's not that the, the genes which are identical in identical twins, are going to build identical networks. The, there are basic rules about how you add more nodes to the network in, in the kind of language that I'm using and how you scale things up uh, over time that are sensitive to random perturbations, ra- random events uh, inside of the, the body and from the outside, you know, a, a stray cosmic ray or, or, or what have you, or just changes in, in, in temperature or the richness of the environment that you're, that you grow up in. A, a good teacher, maybe. Absolutely. Right. Any of these things can change the, the trajectory, not, not, not tremendously, uh, but enough that um, the two, the two brains are, are guaranteed to be different from one another. But yet, you know, we know that identical twins have a lot of correspondences, even in um, even things like uh, intelligence, depending on how you measure these kinds of things, but also personality traits and uh, and various other behaviors. So what this says to me is that it's not strictly, it, it's not a particular way of wiring the brain that gives rise to these things. There are principles that the network has to obey 
in order for those two things to correspond, in order for, for the personalities or the, the uh, emotions of uh, two identical twins to be the same. And, you know, you and I are not uh, probably not uh, very closely genetically related, but yet we can converse with one another. We, in other words, our networks, in addition to being different at the kind of micro scale, there might have other sorts of differences that would be bigger than you would expect for identical twins. And yet we can communicate with one another. We, we can pass along very complex um, ideas and be, be very certain that they're being understood. And again, this, this suggests that there are basic principles, there are basic ways in, in, in which you know, the, the fine details don't necessarily matter. It's the overall principle of how you manipulate information and how you, especially how you share information among uh, lots of different components in a brain. Now then, you, you've explained so much as to why you think uh, it's useful to see the brain as, as being like the internet. What does the internet metaphor miss out on? Where, you know, where are you thinking, yeah, it's pretty good, but it doesn't really do that bit? Yeah, you know, I'll be the first to say that the brain is not identical to the internet. Um, I think it uses similar tricks, but um, it's not exactly the same. I think one of the big problems is addressing so how does one part of the brain decide or choose some other part of the brain to communicate with? A given chunk of the brain, like you know your primary visual cortex, the kind of uh, area involved in uh, primary visual senses, it's connected to dozens, uh, dozens and dozens of other areas. So it could potentially communicate, be communicating with with all of them or or some set of them. But how does it decide which ones to communicate and how does it make those other parts of the brain ready to receive information? How does it communicate within itself, right? So when you're looking out at the world, you're able to compare stuff that's happening over to the right and stuff that's happening over to the left. And presumably that means communicating among the parts of the brain that, that represent those parts of the world. And you need to be able to do this selectively. And we, we seem to have a great capability in this respect. Um, there's been some recent work by a guy called John Mullen, who's a very well-known color vision researcher, and he's just been interested in, you know, how good are you at judging the similarity of colors, for example, for example, when they're right next to each other or when they're separated by, you know, some distance in your field of view. And it turns out there's very little difference in your ability to compare the similarity of colors or the similarity of dots moving in a particular direction. How similar is, is their direction of motion if you look across different parts of, the, of your visual field? And, and so this suggests that there is this ability to selectively compare information or combine information, or the way I look at it, to, to allow communication between different parts of the brain in this kind of selective way. And but how you do that, how do you make the call, right? How, how do you say, okay, there's going to be some, some information coming or, or, or how do you trust the network enough to say, okay, I'm going to send the information out. I'm not going to establish a direct connection between point A and point B, but I'm going to have enough trust in the network that it will get there, right? If you do that, then you need to put the address in the message itself, right? You need to write the address on the envelope as it were. And how can you do that when the kind of messages that we think the brain uses, these spikes or maybe little groups of spikes, you know, they can't carry a tremendous amount of information. So how, 
how that works. Um, there may be a, a you know a variety of different mechanisms at different levels. One seems to be this kind of oscillatory activity. So sometimes you'll see, most of the time, the brain is happily kind of chaotic, right? It's not all flashing at the same time. That would actually be very bad. That would be a seizure, essentially, is when all of the neurons or most of the neurons in a particular area are all firing simultaneously in rhythm. That's what you generally want to avoid. But sometimes you can see these kind of pockets of of synchrony, very brief, you know, maybe for a second at most, but you'll see populations of neurons kind of flashing together for a little while and then and then stopping. And then it's some other pairs of, of areas or chunks of, of the brain that seem to flash together. And, and I'm not the, fir- the first to, to point this out, but there, this does kind of suggest a way, uh, a kind of call or, or some kind of connectivity through intermediaries that allows those two areas to be in sync. And then once they're in sync, maybe that's the thing that allows them to, to pass messages or pass individual packets of information between them, again, selectively and just for a short period. But you're saying that those aspects of brain activity, you know, and you're, you're, you're at the edge of research here, so you know, it's difficult to be conclusive about this, but th- they may not be very like the internet. They may require different explanations. Exactly. I think some of the solutions are, I think some of the tricks are going to be similar. So one trick that the brain, or that the internet uses, it's really ubiquitous throughout all the different kind of components of the internet from ethernet to the larger uh, structures that connect servers and, and routers and so on it has to do with what happens when when messages collide with one another right? and this is something that happens all the time because it's a it's a disordered system right i can decide to send an email now and someone else nearby in the network can decide to send an email whenever they want right so you need to be kind of ready for anything and when they bump into one another the basic solution is that both of the messages are destroyed and the receiver will say to one of the senders, you get to go. And then the other sender has to wait a little while. And uh, and the choice is basically random, right? It, it flips a coin. It says either sender A or sender B gets the chance to send. If they collide again, then there's kind of additional pain and they both have to wait longer to, to pass those messages. And over time, the kind of efficient solution that the internet has worked out is is, is exactly this, right? And so there's a, a good chance that you'll have you'll be able to resend your message right away, but once in a while you have to wait a, quite a long time. And we see kind of similar signatures of the amount of time you have to wait essentially to send a message again or to send multiple messages in the brain. We see a kind of similar distribution in uh, the ti- really the timing between individual spikes or a- uh, action potentials. And so there are these correspondences. And I think these, these are other, uh, this is the kind of circumstantial evidence that I'm setting up here. And, uh, you know, again, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I can't point to direct proof of this, um, uh, of this hypothesis, but I think it's a framework. And I, and, and I think the new sorts of questions that we can ask are, is going to inspire constructing those new experimental paradigms and those new measurement techniques that can get to these very questions. And I think there's starting to be a realization that these are important questions. This last question is, is very unfair because you just come up with this book, which is uh, innovative and, and uh, obviously very interesting. And, um, you know, been much praised by your colleagues. But if, if you go back and say, you know, it used to be plumbing, 
and that had its strengths and weaknesses. And then it used to be the computer, which uh, had its strengths and weaknesses. And if people take up your idea, it's the internet, which similarly has you know, pluses and minuses. What's next? What's after that? Gosh, I've, I've had so many different... <laughs> there, there are lots of different directions to go from here. In some ways, the this idea of metaphor can be taken much further, right? I, I think that what we need is not just one metaphor, but but lots of different metaphors for different aspects um, of the system. So I've, I've been thinking more and more about this, the kind of structure of of science more generally, and and how metaphor is useful and when it can when it can lead us astray. There's this saying that all metaphors are wrong, but some are useful. And so I think it's uh, one of my next projects is kind of to look at, at, at even other metaphors, even other, especially other uh, technical or technological metaphors, and to look for the right place to apply them. Well, look, thank you very much for explaining where you've got to with your research. Your book is called An Internet in Your Head, A New Paradigm for How the Brain Works, as I say, published by uh, Columbia University Press. And I'm sure everyone's been very interested to hear about it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Owen. It's been a real pleasure.